when I think about massive impact, I think ultimately about norm change, but then I think, what are all the pieces that you need to pursue? And what is your comparative advantage as an organization? Because there are places New America is really good at, and there are others where I'd say, no, you know, we need community organizers here. But with all those pieces, you have to be thinking that you're part of something bigger. Welcome to our brand new podcast, Mission to Scale. Before I share my conversation with our very first guest on the show, I thought I'd quickly introduce myself. I'm Dan Borelovitz, the founder and CEO of Spring Impact. While I was running a nonprofit that supported projects in India and Ghana, I got frustrated that the very organizations we were supporting were limiting their impact. And while social organizations are great at starting up and piloting a successful model, few had the skills to scale up. Since Spring Impact was founded in 2011, we've developed scaling and implementation plans for over 250 partners, from Oxfam, GlaxoSmithKline, and Nike Foundation, to nonprofits with huge potential to change more lives. We created the podcast so we could share with you some of the tools and strategies that organizations and funders need to make the most impact. Across episodes, you'll hear from brilliant leaders of today's most dynamic nonprofits, funders, and purpose-driven brands about pursuing change at scale. Before we start the show, please don't forget to subscribe and follow us for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. What motivates me in life is making a difference in the world. Now I would describe myself probably as a social impact entrepreneur, <laughs> but that in the first place, I wouldn't have even known how to say those words when I graduated from college. But even 10 years ago, I probably would not have realized that that in the end is what makes me get up every morning. That's Anne-Marie Slaughter, CEO of New America, a think tank that was founded in 1999. From 2009 to 2011, she served as Director of Policy Planning for the United States Department of State, the first woman to hold the position. Anne-Marie is also the Professor Emerita of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. Today, Anne-Marie and I will be talking about designing for scale and how leaders and organizations can think about scaling impact from the onset. In this episode, Anne-Marie will also share the inspiration behind her new book, Renewal, from crisis to transformation in our lives, work, and politics. So within New America, could you tell us a bit more about the work that you do there? Thought leadership, and clearly a lot of that comes from your writing and, and ideas. And then how do you move things into action? We started as a traditional think tank. Now, beyond the Beltway, think tank doesn't tell most Americans much of anything. If you say, I work in a think tank, they might think of a large fish tank with people <laughs> in it. But a think tank is a policy research institute. It's a place where people research, in our case, issues about education, from early education all the way through pre-K through high school, higher ed, and lifelong learning. Or we do a tremendous amount of work on technology and democracy and how to use technology in a way that is fair and equitable and preserves people's privacy. How do people get access to technology or political reform, global affairs? 
The traditional way of working is you research the problem, you write up a report, you issue the report, and then some places, including New America, do some public interest lobbying to turn the results of that policy into law. It is very clear to me that that process is not enough at the best of times and really ineffective at the worst of times. E.g., you publish that report and nobody reads it, or you publish that report and people read it, but there's no chance of getting it into law, or you do get it implemented, but then you discover that once it's become law and it's implemented, it's not really doing what it was supposed to do, which happens so often. So New America now tries to do the implementing work the action work before we propose to turn something into a policy, which means in places like New America, yes, thinking is important, but it has to be directly linked to action. I think this idea of how do you actually move into action, how do you implement effectively is so important because there are so many ideas, so much jargon out there. But at the end of the day, if, if nothing happens on the ground, nothing happens. How do you make sure that those ideas are translated? Do you have a set of tools or models? How do you sort of arm each individual who's doing that work with the knowledge they need to be able to act? It's such an important question. And, you know, comms, communications, is always the tail end of a traditional project. So the person or the program does the research, does the policy analysis, decides what's wrong, decides what, how to fix it, issues the report. And at that point, it's like, oh, yes, yeah, so we should really put that out there. So today, you know, you send out a tweet, you put it out on Facebook, you call some reporters you know, and, you know, it very often just gets lost, even within the Beltway, much less to a wider audience. New America has had storytelling in our DNA from the beginning, because when we were founded in 1999, we were founded by people who were journalists as well as policy thinkers. And we've always had 15 fellows a year from across the country, many of whom are just great storytellers. So we think a lot about how would you grab a reader, a voter, a beneficiary of a policy who might not realize that they actually are a beneficiary or a politician, uh, a legislator. And that is an area that actually should come right at the outset when you're thinking about a project, particularly now, because you might be wanting to make TikTok videos, which to a traditional think tank is like, what? But if you're thinking about young people, and I think uh, we really do have to be making policy, not just for young people, but with young people, then you've got to reach them where they are. And you have to find ways, just as government has to find ways to make these public issues. I say we are an institution that solves public problems. Well, that's high and mighty, and it makes me feel really good. What about the public, right? We have to engage the public in actually both surfacing those problems, but also then helping to solve them. And for that, communications, storytelling, videos, multimedia content production that is distributed in as many different ways as you can is critical. So 
Anne-Marie, you have a new book, Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics. And it's quite unusual, really, in that it weaves a deeply personal and touching narrative with your thoughts about the future of America and how we can think about that future while accepting and embracing the past. Could you tell us a bit about your impetus for writing it? Renewal is the hardest book I've ever written. It's my eighth book. And I've written some very academic books, and then I've written some more popular books. And this is definitely aimed at a broad audience. It is exactly an effort to talk about important public problems. How do we renew the promise of America as we are really changing as a country? You know, in 2026, which will be the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, we will be on the cusp of moving from a white majority nation to what I call a plurality nation, not majority minority, because if there's no majority, then it doesn't make sense to call people minorities. We're going to be a plurality nation. We're going, no one group will have a majority. But to me, that means, you know, we're a country that reflects the whole world, and yet we're Americans. And there are critical issues we have to face. And I very deliberately wrote about those issues in a way that I hoped would draw many people in, which is to tell my own story very, very honestly, because I'm arguing that renewal is a process that can apply to people, to organizations. And I don't know any organization right now that is not having to take a really good hard look at itself and for the country or for other countries because it's a process that looks backward and forward at the same time. As you said, renewal, look at the word itself. There's a backwards part, the re part, and there's a forwards part, the new part. And my own story was one where I went through a crisis. It wasn't the world's worst crisis by any means, but it certainly shook me and really brought me to kind of what I experienced as a precipice and forced me to really look hard not at a particular set of mistakes, but at broader patterns and to ask my board and ask former bosses, where did I screw up? You know, what have I not done well? Don't just tell me the nice things. And I use that as an analogy or a path for people to see what it takes in an organization where people are always talking about, well, there's all this racism out there and we're going to condemn it, but they rarely want to look at what many employees of color will see as the racism in here or the sexism or the anti-gay sentiment, whatever it may be. And similarly for our country to face the worst of our past, as well as celebrating the best. I wanted to talk about this idea of running towards criticism because you do talk about it in the book um, quite extensively. I mean, we live in a world where many of the leaders of our country's influential organizations, I mean, they are doing the exact opposite of running towards <laughs> criticism. So you talked a bit about why it's important that we take criticism seriously if we want renewal. But how do you balance running towards criticism and the time and energy, huge amount of time and energy it takes doing that? while also sort of getting on with the day-to-day -day work, or maybe it is the day-to-day -day work, but it, but it's, it's a lot to deal with as you're leading an organization. Well, you can't spend all the time on it. 
as you said. And I do think it matters hugely to decide what criticism matters and what doesn't. So I write, for instance, about this crisis that we went through, and my Twitter feed was a disaster. And I just immediately stopped looking at it. Indeed, uh, social media as a whole, as far as I'm concerned, at least that toxic part, should just be ignored. Because, again, you're the best guide as to what criticism is right and what is everybody piling on and making themselves feel better. And particularly as a woman who recognizes a lot of criticism coming from men and some other women as sexist, I know how to brush that off. And if I were a woman of color or if I'm advising someone who is subject, again, to bias of all kinds, I would say, look, you know that criticism is coming from something wrong with the person who's doing the criticizing. The criticism you have to lean into is where you know there's truth there. And you don't want to acknowledge it. And that's, again, our best uh, indicator is, is that we often get very defensive. In an organization, which because New America is going through this work right now, we're going through what we call an equity transformation, where we really examine our own biases, the ways in which people in our organization have experienced bias, racism, sexism, not being treated equally. and. We can't do that all day. We wouldn't get our work done. We do think that that will make us a far better organization. So we have, you know, we have regular sessions, we have homework, we have ways that we can raise these subjects in day-to-day -day interaction. But we also, of course, have lots of other work to do. It's like building muscles. It's like getting stronger. Right? You do it, it's painful, and you get stronger, and then you do it again. You don't do it all the time. but So it's more that process. I think I would analogize it really to getting fit. You also talk about this idea of leading horizontally and how you can exclude people on the edges. How are you now leading your organization to make sure you aren't excluding people at the edges or maybe being more inclusive for everyone? What can other leaders do to do the same? The first thing I ought to say is that I think if new Americans heard that question, they'd say, well, she's still got a ways to go. And I recognize that. I have talked about horizontal leadership and written about horizontal leadership for 20 years because I'm a network theorist. And I started out talking about ladders, which are hierarchies. And when you lead uh, in a hierarchy, you're at the top and you generally have tools to make people below you do what you want them to do, kind of command and control. That often is overrated, but it's still the presumption. And leading in a network or leading, think about leading in a web, right? You're the center of the web is much less coercive. You don't have formal power over others, but it's still power because you are the person in the center. You're the person with the most knowledge. You're the person with the most connections. You're the person who can move in ways that will send action rippling throughout that web. And what I had not realized, well, I'd probably talked about it, but it had never come home to me, is that if you're at the center, the person on the edge feels just as powerless as the person at the bottom of that hierarchy. And I should have known that because when we talk about people who don't have power, we call them marginalized, which means they're on the margins of our society 
the edge of that web. It means they have fewer connections. They don't have the strong relationships that will help them be mentored or sponsored. It will take them many rows. It's not rungs on a ladder, but it's kind of those uh, nodes in that network to get to the center. They have fewer channels of communication. So if I don't lead in a way that actually says, look, you can't speak and send something out to the whole group the way I can, what are you thinking? How can we create those channels of communication? And I want to be clear. I don't actually believe you can run an organization completely horizontally. You might be able to mobilize a movement, although even there, if you look at Black Lives Matter or Me Too or Wikipedia for that matter, there's always a hierarchy somewhere because somebody has to make decisions and other people have to execute. But I do think you can flatten that hierarchy at regular intervals and then recognize a whole web of relationships and you can lead from the edge as well as the center. That is definitely a practice in progress, but it's one of the things I learned. Risk is another thing you talk about in the book. <laughs> and risk, we know in our work at Spring Impact, critical if we're to change the way the system works more broadly. How do you think we need to rethink how we take risks in our personal lives and also in wider society if we're to create the change we want to see? The answer to that question is a paradox. I have come to believe that if we want people to take more risks, we have to give them more security. This is actually pretty obvious when you think about it, but I had never thought about it this way. If taking a risk in your personal life, in your professional life particularly, means that you are going to lose your livelihood or lose your house, or imperil someone close to you, the cost of that risk is much higher. And the result is that the reward from that risk has to be astronomical to outweigh that high cost. Because risk takers are rational. One of the things I've recognized doing all the research is we think of personalities as being risk-taking. I start out with Tom Cruise, you know, from risky business to mission impossible. You know, they're just these daredevils. Actually, the research on risk doesn't bear that out. There are people who are daredevils in one part of their lives and deeply conservative in other parts. So they actually calculate. And if we want people to take a risk, to pursue a reward, then we have to make sure that they don't fall all the way, that there's a, not just a safety net, I think of it much more as really a cushion as a, and even a foundation. And I use my own example here, you know, at 59, when I got into a crisis, suddenly I thought, you know, I might not get rehired if I lose this job. <laughs> you know, I, I have to be much, much more careful. So within people's personal lives, but more importantly, in organizations and very much as a country, we pride ourselves on being a country of risk takers, of entrepreneurs. We're going to have to create a whole new social foundation to create conditions under which those risks are worth taking. Anne-Marie, you're a true thought leader. This is your eighth book. <laughs> um, with this new book and really in all your writing, it's clear you're seeking to create positive impact on the world, leave it a better place for future generations. 
So listeners are here to understand how to create impact at scale. What's worked when it comes to thought leadership and actually creating real change? And really, what are your frustrations or are there limitations around creating practical change? Well, the, the frustrations and limitations are legion. In terms of what's worked, certainly storytelling. I have to start by saying, no matter what I achieve in however long, however many decades I'm still on this earth, I don't think I will do more than what the article I published in The Atlantic in 2012 did, where I wrote a story that was compelling enough as a story about my own assumptions that you could have it all if you just worked hard enough and tried hard enough and were committed enough, and then getting to a dream job at the State Department, loving it, but having an adolescent son who really was having problems. Again, many kids have acted out far worse than mine did, but it meant I had to make a different choice. And suddenly I understood that this narrative of, well, if you just try hard enough, if you're just organized enough, if you manage to squeeze every minute out of every day was just wrong. You know, that I was plenty ambitious and I had every privilege and still, I had to make room for care. And when I wrote that article, it, it just caught a wave. It caught an intergenerational wave. And it's been almost 10 years since I wrote that article. The article that Anne-Marie wrote is titled, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. The piece, which was published in 2012, quickly became The Atlantic's most read article in its then 150-year history. When I think about impact at scale, I would go back to the conversation we were having earlier about communication and how do you frame an issue in a way that really gets people talking. And again, ideally, that gets people talking far beyond the chattering class, <laughs> you know, people who talk for a living. The second thing I would say, and it's connected, is to think about how do you build a whole field? I think one of the mistakes that people make as nonprofit leaders is to think much too much about how their organization is going to make a difference and not enough about how their organization can connect to other organizations that are doing similar work and not just achieve a particular goal. So New America, for instance, worked with a whole lot of organizations to achieve the goal of net neutrality, to have it written into a regulation that big companies could not charge people different amounts for accessing the internet. So net neutrality, everybody is on an equal footing when it comes to accessing the internet. That's great, but that's just one issue. I think you want to partner with lots of other organizations to create a new field or to reframe a whole set of issues. And the example I'll give you comes from that article. When I wrote Why Women Still Can't Have It All in 2012, I was a career feminist. I was thinking about what do we have to do in the workplace to empower women and put them on an equal footing with men. And I had all sorts of changes. Three years later, when I published a book called Unfinished Business, I thought we really have to focus on care. Because the biggest obstacle 
to gender equality is that traditional men's work is valued. I grew up wanting to be a lawyer like my father. I never thought about being a homemaker like my mother. But now I think, you know, that work of care that my mother did was every bit as important. And frankly, every bit as hard. And I know whereof I speak because I'm a lawyer and a mother. <laughs> every bit as hard uh, as what my father did. And so from 2015 on, I and others at New America have worked with many groups who've been pushing the kind of what I would call now a care agenda for many years. I've published lots of articles and in renewal, I talk about what would an infrastructure of care look like. That is where I think you really can see the needle moving. So now care is on the national agenda. Would I say that I or New America did that? No. Would I say I really can trace lines between the work we've done and where we are as a country, including many, many fellow organizations and thinkers and writers to where we are? Yes, I can. And that, that to me is work at scale. And frustrations and limitations <laughs> with this model. Well, the biggest ones are that the funding incentives are all wrong. You know, when you're a nonprofit leader, you live or die by general operations support. So the overhead you collect on the dollars that are given you to do very specific projects and whatever money you can raise from your board or enlightened funders who recognize that you really have to have the freedom to pay your rent, to pay your people, to start new things, to have a rainy day fund, all of that. Because I need that general operating support, I'm not going to collaborate with another organization that's doing similar work to me because if there's a $500,000 grant and we each only get $250,000, which might be enough for us to do the work, I'm only going to get the 15% overhead on $250,000, not $500,000, and that's a big difference. So I'm not going to do that. So <laughs> it is just so frustrating that funders neither really create incentives to work with other organizations and they don't pay for the people who maintain those coalitions. And I know, Dan, you know a lot about this in your own work to weave that web, to supply the connective tissue. You know, people don't collaborate, you know, just sort of without thinking it's a lot of work. Somebody has got to send those emails. Somebody has to, troubleshoot when there are tensions, as there always are. Someone has to remind everybody of what those big goals are. Someone has to, to tell that collective story. So New America is going to tell our story. Who's going to tell the story of the CARE Coalition? So that's the biggest frustration. And frankly, I do think limitation, because I think in just about every area we work, if funders would create those incentives and fund what you might call collaboration managers, I think we could get much further. Absolutely. You're giving me PTSD slightly as you're, as you're talking <laughs> about that frustration. No, I mean, th this collaborate, you can move things so far through well-coordinated collaboration, but it is, it is tough. It is really tough. How would you define scale of impact? So the biggest scale of impact is norm change. And the best example we can all think of, if you're my age, is the norm change about smoking. I grew up in Virginia in the 60s and 70s at a time when 
at dinner parties, hostesses would put little vases of cigarettes out on the table. <laughs> Can you imagine at a dinner party today putting out cigarettes? I mean, I get, you know, there are men who still repair for cigars, but smoking was not only ingrained, it was cool. And I remember Virginia Slim's, all the advertising was about, you know, this is cool. And look, young people still smoke and they still think it's cool. But overall, we have dramatically changed the norms around smoking. In part, people look at you and they think you're weak. They think you're endangering your own health and the health of others because there's been all the work on secondary smoke. It, it is something that people are more likely to be ashamed of than to flaunt. That's norm change, and it took decades. I think similarly, when I talk about care, I can see a world in which men will be proud of taking parental leave. And employers will say to a man whom they're interviewing, you mean you had parental leave and you didn't take it? Like, what's the matter with you? That should be as important a part of your life as a father, brother, you know, any caretaker, because it could be caregiving for your parents and for others, that should be as important as earning a good living and achieving. But to do that is a long, slow process. So when I think about massive impact, I think ultimately about norm change, but then I think, what are all the pieces that you need to pursue? And what is your comparative advantage as an organization? Because there are places New America is really good at, and there are others where I'd say, no, you know, we need community organizers here. We need people who are really much more about community action uh, than even thought and action. But with all those pieces, you have to be thinking that you're part of something bigger. You've written about innovation and that it needs to be people-centered experimental, data-enabled, and design for scale. What does design for scale mean? And how can leaders, organizations think about scaling impact from the onset? That's a very important consideration at the outset of any project. So that process, which uh, Tara McGuinness and I call the new practice of public problem solving, does start with human-centered design. It looks at data, data-enabled feedback, but it says from the beginning, you have to have a strategy of scale. Now, some of this we were aiming at social entrepreneurs who think that they're going to achieve massive change without involving government. And Tara and I are both people who have been in the federal government and who believe that in the end, you know, no matter how many billionaires you mobilize, it's not anything like the money that the power of state taxpayers or city taxpayers or national taxpayers can wield through the government. So there, what we're saying is you may be a fabulous social entrepreneur, but you ought to be thinking at the beginning, I'm going to prove out my concept. I'm going to create a for-profit mission centered company for benefit company. But at some point, even if I'm really successful, I'm going to have to work with government. I might have to get policies changed to enable more companies like mine. I might have to sell what I'm doing to a government agency in a way that they partner with companies like mine. 
But you really have to think at the outset about how you're going to get to government scale. The flip of that is if your government don't assume you know what works. This is where you and I started. Start with the idea that there are lots of people out there already trying to tackle this problem and that just because you're the government, you don't know and often you are not close enough to the actual problem. So start with pilot projects, start with collaboration with the civic and private sector, and then gradually build to the scale that you have. And I would say the same thing with really big sponsors. I'd say the same thing about replication strategies. But I do believe there's a kind of California mantra that we can do this on our own and we're better than Washington and we're better than Sacramento. And I think most of those cases fail in the end because no matter how much they achieve scale from where they started, it's not that massive scale that government can bring. What is the message that you'd like people to take away from this? I think most of us read the news, look around our country, don't recognize what we see and feel despair. I believe this country has renewed its promise before. I think it's done so by starting with people. I think that process requires radical honesty and the courage and strength to face our failings, our flaws, our misdeeds. But that if we have that courage, we can renew what is best about this country. The ideals that we've pledged allegiance to for most of our lives. And I think we have such a bright future as a country that truly does reflect the world and connects people on the basis of our common humanity rather than our nationalism, our race, our ethnicity, or our creed. It was an honor to have Anne-Marie as our first guest on Mission to Scale. If you're interested in learning more about what Anne-Marie shared today, you can get a copy of her book, Renewal, From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics. The link is in our show notes. I really hope you enjoyed our first episode of Mission to Scale, and I hope you recommend our podcast to a friend or colleague. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode.